You're listening to the Missionary Perspective Podcast with veteran missionaries Eric Johnson and Joshua Mead. We're glad you could join us. We trust this podcast will be both a blessing and a challenge as we relate topics in world evangelism from a missionary perspective. Now, here's Josh and Eric. Hi, this is Joshua Mead, and we are glad that you're joining us today for our Missionary Perspective podcast, and we are really excited. Today we have with us veteran missionary Bob Mack. He is serving in the Ivory Coast, or I think you technically it's Cote d'Ivoire. Am I right, uh, Brother Mack? Yeah, it sure is, Josh. Uh, they ask that it be referred to as Cote d'Ivoire, regardless of the language. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, how long have you been serving in Cote d'Ivoire? And then tell us a little bit about, um, you know, I guess our first question after you give a brief introduction is what, how did you come to serve in Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire? What led you to Cote d'Ivoire? Okay, well, uh, again, Bob and Becky Mack were sent by the Cleveland Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, to the Ivory Coast in West Africa with uh, Baptist International Missions Incorporated. And we have been working here for 26 years now um, in church planting ministry, uh, first in the city of Anyama, and then since the year 2000, we've been working in the cities of Bangerville, Zanapadugu, and Mont. Um how the Lord led me to the Ivory Coast when I was in high school, I felt the Lord directing me into missions, uh, I guess, because uh, once I accepted Christ at the beginning of my ninth grade year, uh, I'd heard the gospel for two years, and I just assumed that everybody in the world had that opportunity. I thought, you know, quite naively that the gospel is uh, published and is announced everywhere in the world, and everyone has an opportunity to think it through and come to their decision. And as I started growing spiritually, I, of course, learned that that was not the case, and the Lord kind of used that to move me towards missions. Uh, my first couple of years in college, I was thinking maybe Latin America or South America, and um, possibly, you know, uh, Mexico or someplace like that. And the Bible college I was going to only offered Spanish, and they only took missions trips to Mexico. And so it seemed like that was all working out really well for me. But when I was finally able to go on the missions trip that particular year, they did not go to Mexico. They went to Togo, West Africa, which, of course, when I first got that news, I thought, man, this is very disruptive. I don't know why they're doing this. But I opted to go on the trip anyway, and very, very quickly upon arriving in Togo, I really sensed that, you know, this was the area of the world that the Lord wanted me to work in. So as I wrapped up college, I knew I was coming back to Sub-Saharan West Africa. And uh, it was while I was on staff at church, uh, at our church there in Cleveland, that uh, through prayer and through talking with people and what have you, uh, the Lord narrowed it down to uh, Ivory Coast. You had told me uh, when we discussed, when we came out to Ivory Coast for our uh, missions, um, what do they call it, a um, conference anyways for missionaries, we came down to Ivory Coast. Yeah, the field conference. And uh, one of the things you mentioned about uh, when you sensed your call to God was you loved it so much coming out and just being on the mission field. Your first, uh, I don't know if it was your internship, but you enjoyed it so much. You thought, surely God can't be calling me to that. Talk a little bit about that. The Lord certainly wants us miserable in whatever it is that we're doing. So <laughs> you just know it's going to kind of be that way. And when I got to the Ivory Coast, it was my first real experience outside of the United States. I mean, I'd taken a very brief trip to Mexico and I'd been to Canada, but 
this was my first time where I'm really getting put into a different culture somewhere else in the world. And uh, man, I just, I loved it. We got in on a Tuesday and the following day, Wednesday, our, our college group divided up into smaller groups of four or five students. And we each went with a different missionary to their midweek service. And, you know, I'm finding myself in this village here in Togo and uh, everything's happening in the Ave language. And I don't have a clue what's going on around me as far as understanding the language is concerned, but was just loving the experience and somewhere in that evening service the thought came to me hey i can i can come here i can come to sub-saharan west africa as a missionary i haven't committed anywhere else and that was immediately followed up with the thought no there's no way that this would be god's will for my life because i'm just loving it way too much and and so for like about a week i'm kind of going through this bizarre mental process where i'm thinking boy what a shame you know what a shame the the Lord wouldn't have me work here. I'm just really enjoying it so much. And then finally, you know, in my devotional time, it's like the Lord finally got through and said, you know, Bob, sometimes you are so profoundly stupid. Perhaps <laughs> the reason why uh, uh, you're liking it so much is because this is what I created you to do. So uh, by the time that we came to the end of that trip, I just was very much convinced that the Lord was going to bring me back to sub-Saharan West Africa. I love that. Just amazing how God works in that ways. And sometimes we're just stubborn. We miss it. What, when you, uh, so you came back, surrendered to the call, uh, Cote d'Ivoire was in your crosshairs. Uh, tell us a little bit, maybe, um, tell us a little bit about meeting your wife. Was mission something she always wanted to do? And then you guys get married, raise support, and then, Talk about a little bit about your first term. What was your first term like? So introduce us a little bit to, to your wife, how you guys met, and then a little bit about your first term, your experience. Yeah, Becky uh, is the second of 10 children. Uh, she was born into the John Marshall family. My father-in-law was an evangelist uh, during those years. And uh, I didn't meet her until I was 26. Uh, it was after my first full year on staff at, at our church there in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, it was quite frankly, really beginning to wonder at that point in time, uh, pastor Roy Thompson, our founding pastor was still pastoring the church. And he'd made it pretty clear to me that unless I was absolutely convinced I was supposed to stay single, I really wasn't going to get in any deputation or anything else until, uh, I had marriage taken care of. And, uh, you know, that can provoke a young man to getting pretty deliberate about getting himself married, uh, which <laughs> right didn't work for me very well at all at the church there. But after my first year of teaching, um, that first summer, summer of 89, uh, Becky's family came to our church for her brother-in-law's ordination. And so that's when we first met. Uh, it was actually in the bus garage because at that point in time, I was out there working on another girl's car. And that girl <laughs> was out in my car going to get something for us to eat. And I remember thinking, Lord, I don't know where she is in my car right now, but if you would just have my car break down wherever it is, that would be perfectly fine <laughs> with me. And unfortunately, that didn't quite happen, but it did allow for Becky and I to meet. Uh, that was in July of 89. I was able to see her for a week in November of 89. I was able to travel with her family uh, in the summer of 1990, and we got engaged in September of 1990, and we were married in May of 1991. So Becky had never 
sense the Lord calling her into missions. Uh, she just knew she was just, she was open to whatever the Lord would have her do. And I, I was pretty direct about that. And that week in November of 89, where we were able to get together each evening for a week, um, we got to the end of that time and she was going to be flying back out to Washington and her family was going to be on the West coast for like six, seven months. And you have to remember, this is in the day before the internet, before cell phones. Right. Uh, the only way I could communicate with her was on a landline. And you remember with those, you don't call people on landlines. You call places hoping that those people happen to be there. And uh, as well, you sat down with an actual pen and a piece of paper and wrote a letter and then took it to the post office. So communicating back in those days required a great deal more effort. We got down to the end of that week and I said, Beck, I'm going to tell you, I really love this week. I really enjoyed this time with you. I'd love to con continue to communicate with you, but you got to know I'm 26 and I don't date for kicks anymore and I'm going to West Africa. So if you would like to stay in touch, I would love to call and write over these next few months until you get back on our side of the country. But honestly, if you don't see any potential in this, I think you ought to just let me know right now and we'll be done with it. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she went into full arrest. We had to call an ambulance and bring it. No, not really. But still, uh, Becky was very timid at that point in time. And she sort of had to recover for that. But she was able to let me know. She was able to let me know. Yes, she'd be willing to stay in contact. Um, so. But honestly, uh, the fact that Becky never felt a specific call to missions has not in any way uh, created any difficulty for her. I think my wife is the ultimate African missionary. Um, she has done such a splendid job out here on the Ivory Coast. When we first came, we worked in the city of Anyama with another missionary. I mean, I knew, uh, you know, I'm still hacking away with this French trying to understand it. Uh, I don't begin to understand West African culture. To, to go somewhere and try and start a church right off the bat seemed rather foolish to me. And so there was another missionary out here, just a little bit younger than I was, who had been here for a year. And I spoke with him and we just determined we'd work together. And those were very good years. That was from 1995 until January of 2000. And we started an independent Baptist church there in Anyama. Actually, he had before I got there and then I worked with him. And uh, we had an institute going at that point in time, and the Lord greatly blessed it. That church is still there today. Uh, that missionary turned it over in 2006 to one of the men that we trained in those late 90s, and uh, church is still going today. As a matter of fact, that pastor is the president of the Pastors Fellowship out here now, doing a terrific job. And uh, our first term, in, in my opinion, really was a, was a good success. It allowed us to get into the ministry without necessarily carrying the whole weight of it, and as such, we're able to improve our language skills and develop our cultural understanding. That's excellent. That's so important, those first years of training. And, um, oh, wait a second. It says we're running out of time. We've removed. Okay. I just saw okay, a we're... sign to set it up the minutes. Yeah, so it's given us more minutes. That's weird. I didn't know you do that. All right, I'm going to edit that part out. But anyways, all right, so we'll continue here. Um, so you, you spent that really kind of a first, a little over a, a first full term working with another missionary and getting a church started. So you launch out on your own and is that, was that your next step? Did you launch out on your own? Did you have a team, you know, that you worked with together or was it just you and your family going to a location and getting a ch church started? Tell us a little bit about those early days of, of what, how you made a decision to start a church where you're currently at now? And then what were some of those early days like in getting the church started? 
Yeah, you know, after those four and a half years in Anyama, uh, we had a lot of men that were getting into the Institute. And I don't know, it just seemed to me that, you know, if I got up and preached, I was taking an opportunity away from one of our men that was in training. Uh, the church was maturing very well. Uh, it just seemed as though uh, it really no longer needed two missionaries working there. And uh, again, we had been able to developing language and in culture. And so we just felt the time had come to move on. And so we did. Um, we went just our family to the city of Bangerville, really specifically at that point in time. Um, the other families that were out here had already chosen places to go. And so we really weren't able to team up with any other family as it were, but we came to Bangerville and uh, we moved into our home in January of 2000. Uh, for six months, I worked on getting authorization uh, for the church to meet in our home. Uh, I put together some of the other things that we were going to need, signs indicating our home and, and what have you. And then uh, we opened the church in June of 2000 and, you know, just began to let it grow and develop. We were in that house for the first two years of the church, and then we were able to get it onto its own land and, and go from there. But um, We've had some people that have come and interned with us on the way because we've been in Bangerville now for 21 years. And uh, so we've been able to help others as they've gotten started in their ministries out here. Um, but um, I would have thought that we turned the Bangerville church over quite a long time ago, but the Lord has made it clear, especially in these latter years, that he really wants to use this church kind of as a model. And as well, the Bible Institute is now based out of this church, and it's helpful that I would have a hand in both while we're integrating those two ministries together. So that's kind of yeah, how we got where we are now. And that's something I want to get into a little bit later and get a deeper look into kind of that pattern of church planting that you guys are using in your approach to ministry there. But when you got there in those first years of planting the, you know, planting your church, getting the gospel out. Um, what were some of the ways I like to look at different, I love different cultures and different insights. One of the challenges many missionaries face it, when sharing the gospel is trying to figure out how the people perceive what you're communicating because your definition can be completely different than what their definition of a word is. So what was some of in those early days as you're learning the culture, how did Ivorians view church in general when you began planning your church um is it is it different region from region or are there different views with different ethnicities and then how did they specifically view uh the baptist church and then i guess a very more detailed question would be how what surprised devorians most about attending a service or two of your church so kind of what's the broad view of Christianity, Christian terms that the Ivorians had, and then what did they view the Baptist church and then your church specifically, what surprised them when they would attend your church? Well, um, Beigeville is just east of Abidjan. And so it's always been in the Abidjan district and uh, with the huge expansion that has been taking place here in the Abidjan area, it, it, uh, Abidjan is essentially uh, swallowed up Bangerville. So um, we're in that area. It's the main hub of the country. It's certainly the most modern area of the country. 
And so to a large degree, the people that we were trying to witness to had some type of concept of church. Uh, but most of their experiences had either been uh, in a Catholic church or in a charismatic church. So as we opened our church and, and, and we began holding church service and people began coming, the thing that I absolutely heard the most was, and this will kind of make you laugh, but the thing I would hear the most is, wow, you guys really use your Bible here. <laughs> you know, like that. Wow, what a novel idea. You know, we're actually going to open this thing and see what it says. You know, uh, they were just either so accustomed to ritualistic Catholicism or experiential charismatic movement right. that in spite of any church experience they may have had somewhere along the way, it did not include actually getting into the scriptures and understanding what they were saying. And I think really that has become the trademark. Uh, I think when our people talk to other people in the town about our church, that's generally what they'll say more than anything else. Hey, if you come to our church, you really will begin to understand what the Bible says. And uh, so and that's kind of how it was. So in your early days of church planning, what, what was your primary uh, efforts put into to get the church launched? Um, obviously, you know, discipleship, evangelism, we give those answers when we're raising support or to churches when on deputation when they ask you what are you going to do well we're going to church plant we're going to disciple we're going to evangelize that's a given but a lot of times when a missionary gets to the field he, he has no ideas really what that's going to look like as it's being fleshed out so in your early days of the church plant how did those what did that look like your discipleship your uh, your evangelism, was it similar to what we might do in the States? Were there things you did differently than what you were expecting to do? And then, then let's get into, after you talk a little bit about that, I want to get into how, how you, your outreach began to grow and expand with various methods and ministries. But let's just start with that. Your, your first early days, what was most of your effort and energy uh, put into to getting the church started? Well, in the beginning, it's pretty simple. Uh, especially with us, we were meeting in our home, uh, our house that uh, we've, we've moved since then, but the house we were in at that point in time was on two levels and the downstairs level had a large room with its own entrance out of the property, out onto the road. And so it was perfect. Uh, we could just open up those doors. The folks would come into that room. We do the church service there. When we were done, they could leave. And, uh, you know, it didn't leave us with the feeling that we had, these people invading our home every time. Uh, it just, it, it worked exceptionally well, but it's right there at the house. You know, you're not developing any church ministries. Essentially at the beginning, you're just establishing your church services. And we just started, you know, with the typical Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. So, I mean, oh, so much time to be able to go out into town and evangelize. I mean, I just right. used to walk, just walk in the streets or walk through the neighborhoods. It's all I'd have to do. People would stop and start talking just start sharing with them the gospel, letting them know we had the church going. And, you know, for like the first year or two, there's never a church service without a visitor. Another thing that that helped a great bit was just putting up signs around town, indicating hmm. where our church was meeting. Uh, for the first year, I don't think there was ever a service that went by where we didn't have a visitor who said the reason why they had come was because they'd seen our signs. So uh, <laughs> we found that to be pretty effective. As people accepted Christ, uh, you know, we began 
into a discipleship program that, of course, included right there at the top baptism and getting them to understand what that's all about. Right. Um, we had kind of a 16 lesson thing that we like to do, and we would go through salvation, eternal security, and then hit baptism. And as, as we recognized that they were understanding the concept of baptism and how that was supposed to go and what it was supposed to mean, then we would begin to baptize them. And, uh, you know, we just operated at that level for a long time uh, where we're just doing the three church services because it was in our house. We had to recognize that we had other people living in their homes around us. So we didn't use a sound system. We didn't uh, uh, we didn't have any other activities there outside of those three services each week. And uh, boy, the, you know, the church really grew, I would say, within a couple of years, we're well over 100 Um and it was getting a little rough there at the house uh, right. because that room downstairs, I could have about 70, 70 adults in there. And uh, the kids we had out back underneath the tent. And, uh, you know, we were packing that place at about 90 on Sunday morning, 90 adults and the kids out back. And it was, you know, getting very challenging, uh, which was why we were so thankful to get onto our property when we did. But that's kind of how it got started. I mean, I often think back to those days so much evangelism, so much opportunity to get out and talk with people. Uh, you know, after these 21 years with the church and with the Bible Institute, I mean, my ministry now is really heavy in the bishop area, organizing and administrating right. and overseeing and, and helping those ministries go. But back in those early days, um, all kinds of opportunity to evangelize and get out and talk with people and, um, so that, that's kind of how it was. And it was, it's been that I, way for the first five years. Yeah. I remember coming out. I loved just the spirit of the church there and seeing the dynamics of the ministry. And um, I encourage you at the end of the podcast, uh, brother Mac will leave his contact information, how you can follow his ministry, learn more about it. But it's just incredible what the Lord is, how he's using you there, what he's doing. One of the questions I, I had is here in Senegal, our experience working with specifically the Wolof people being predominantly Islamic is that your religious identity here is completely tied in with your both your national identity and your ethnic identity. That's just it's inseparable. And so they view church as being the Tubab religion, right? The white guy religion, um, unironically, as they, you know, totally embrace Arab culture and Arab dress. They're calling the uh, members of our church just followers of the white people. But that being said, uh, in Ivory Coast, is it is it a similar perception with when you have a foreigner such as yourself or myself working in a country? Is the church viewed as the white guy's church or is it just viewed as we're all believers, we're one in Christ, or was there kind of a transition where this isn't Bob Mack's church that you're starting? Was that ever even kind of assumed with those who would come and join to where it is now, where when I was there just a couple years back, it's this is an Ivorian church with Ivorian leadership. And, and uh, so was that always like that from the beginning or was that intentional in your part in the way that you led or what, did it just happen? Well, I, when we started the church, I did not have an Ivorian candidate to become the pastor. So right, obviously, right. obviously I'm functioning in that capacity. And the fact of the matter is we, we went for many, many years before the Lord, um, 
you know, began to work in that area and, and demonstrate to us who, who that candidate would be. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the best answer to your question is to say that it really varies depending upon who's doing the talking. I think that most of the people in Bangerville that are aware of our church who have never visited our church may be inclined to refer to it as the American church. And that might, that would not necessarily be with any derision as much as just distinction. Sure. Um, right. There's a Korean Presbyterian church that's in our town. And so, you know, the folks who refer to that, well, that's at that Korean church over there. Uh, because I've started the church and I'm known in the town, they'll say, well, they, they may say, well, that's, that's the American church. Uh, but honestly, uh, as best as I'm able to tell, uh, there, there really isn't anything negative about that. It's just a, a means that they've adopted for distinguishing our church from, from any other one. Um, right. And that was, that was really, yeah, the, the crux of the question, because here, yeah. um, obviously we went for many years with just, you know, our leadership, um, with no prospect at all of a national leader. Um, until the Lord led a young man who's now um, the lead pastor of the church here. But there is within the culture here a negative connotation to Christianity in general. Obviously, we're in a different part of the world. So I guess, yeah, my main question, and you answered it, was is, is that obviously it's going to be looked at as, you know, there's an American there, and so that's going to always stand out. That's what we noticed here. Anytime there is a foreigner involved, that's going to stand out like a sore thumb. But are there any negative connotations to that? And if not, then I mean, it's it's not an issue that has to be addressed in every culture. In ours, we have to try to address it a little more um, than we than maybe in a place like Cote d'Ivoire. So, as yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I don't I don't think that generally speaking it's negative. You know, you always have some personalities that don't deal well with differences and and want to hold to what they view to be traditionally theirs. But uh, generally speaking here in the Abishan area of, of Ivory Coast, um, I, I honestly don't believe that uh, my nationality and the fact that I've come here as a foreigner and started this work, I, I don't think that that is generally viewed negatively. Right, yeah. So as your uh, church is expanding, it's growing, obviously you outgrew your uh, downstairs at your house. So uh, you branch out, purchase property. Uh, you have a, a nice a building where your institute is held, the church meets, and uh, that's in development. So as your ministry grew, what are some other tools and resources that you began to implement to uh, outreach a little bit further and expand the reach of your church. Um, I know you just finished a medical uh, mission. Tell us a little bit about some of those. I, you told us about a when we were there a couple years back, a sports clinic you did, things like that. Tell us a little bit more about how you were able to multiply and expand the outreach of the church through other outreaches. Well, after, I don't know, after about a year, I'm looking at the people that are coming and it's apparent to me that at that point in time, we're only successfully reaching a certain segment of society. Uh, everyone that's coming to my church, uh, you know, they're, they're Ivorian. They're, they have some type of, let's just say in a very general sense, some type of very general Christian background or something like that, or, or maybe not. 
but they weren't they're not particularly steeped in animism i mean it, the the animist effects as you know josh in africa are, are invaded at varying levels in, in different people's lives it's always there in some form or another uh but we you know the people we were reaching were not really steeped in that they were not active practicing that actively practicing that um so you know and i i, I held a meeting with the men one day i said you know we we just need to figure out what we're going to do uh, because we're not successfully reaching many different segments of our population here in Bangerville. So let's think about the Muslims. How are we going to reach the Muslims in our town? Uh, let's think about the fact that Bangerville is a big school town and we have six, seven, 8,000 junior high and high school students that come from the interior of the country every year and who stay in dorms in order to go to schools in this town. Let's think about the fact that we have 12 villages around Bangerville that are very animist and very closed to coming because I'd gone to those villages and asked the chief if I could preach there, if I could show films, if I could evangelize, and every one of them had categorically refused. So, uh, you know, what can we do? And I just threw this out to the men in our church. I said, we need to find ways to do this. And to keep the story short, one guy comes back to me talking about opening a literacy center because illiteracy in the Ivory Coast is found principally in the immigrant Muslim population. 25% of the population here is immigrant from the countries of uh, Togo, Benin, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, even Senegal. Um, and so most of these immigrants, 25% of the population here are Muslim and that's where you find illiteracy so if you open a literacy center, the demographics themselves indicate most of your students are going to be Muslim. And that is the case. We have three, 300 students in that center now, and we're able to get them, in addition to teaching them to read and write, we're able to get them through uh, a 10th grade level of education so that they can get what's referred to as the Bepece, which is very advantageous. And uh, these are Muslims that are now hearing the gospel week after week, month after month, year after year in our center. And many of them are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, with the youth, we realized that staying in the dorms, most of the dorms that were available for those students are dorms that are either usually associated with the Roman Catholic Church, which means they're going to have to go to Mass on Sunday. They can't come to our church. So we opened a basketball center and then later affiliated with a soccer center uh, so that we could have those kids come to our centers and get involved in sports because there are no sports programs in the schools here. So this is a very rare opportunity for them to get involved in organized sports. And if they're in our center, then they're working their way through the source of light Bible study materials where they're getting the gospel, they're getting, um, you know, they're learning about Christ, they're learning about the Bible. And so many of them are able to come to Christ. As far as those villages are concerned, really the best way to break in to that scenario is with medicine. And we opened a, med a medical ministry. We had a clinic for six years. And as well, we have Christy McLaughlin with us, nurse, nurse practitioner, and she does uh, medical work in those villages. And that keeps those villages open for us to come in to evangelize and hold church services. So it was really the men of our church that had these ideas. I was often resistant. I mean, uh, the literacy center, I told our guy, I said, man, we've already got eight of those in our city. That, that's kind of social gospel. You know, I'm not sure I really want to go down <laughs> right. that road. Why would you suggest that we do that? <laughs> well, he just starts naming off all the ways that we're going to evangelize Muslims by opening that center. And I, man, I had to roll up the white flag in a hurry. Okay, okay, okay. You, 
you've <laughs> made your case. And so, uh, but th it's stuff that, you know, our men were behind, they suggested, and we've been able to move forward with that and develop those ministries in our local church context. As your ministry is growing, and of course, these outreaches are beginning, I like what you said. So you mentioned it already. I wanted to get a little deeper into that. Implementing the national leadership, not just your leadership team, getting members involved. Uh, how do you build that sense of ownership for the members that they're not just attending your church, but that you're implicating members? How did you come to forming, you know, leadership teams and then when launching out ministries, uh, what what does that process look for like for you as the missionary? You mentioned a little bit about you know you posing them questions, they're bringing the ideas, but maybe get a little deeper into that process for you as the missionary. How do you balance being the overseer of these ministries, but knowing that you have to have the national leadership? Uh, taking ownership of these ministries kind of what's the thought process for you as a missionary when you you want to get an outreach going you just like i said you already mentioned a little bit but maybe get a little deeper into that for a young guy who's wants to get his national workers that's working with them pastors and others involved what's that process look like well it's it's in some ways it's the most challenging point how can i know when a national is ready to assume a specific responsibility within the church. Uh, honestly, of, of probably all the people in the church, I would be the least capable of discerning that because <laughs> I'm not Ivorian. I didn't grow up here. And right. so it's going to be extremely difficult for me to figure that out in a lot of different senses. But I, I think to, to get to the answer to the question, number one, uh, I, I've made it clear. Yes, I've been here 21 years, but you talk to any one of our church members they understand precisely what autonomy is. If you ask them today, is their church autonomous? They'll absolutely tell you, no, we are not yet autonomous. If you ask them what has to happen before you can be, they'll tell you, as far as our ministries and our finances are concerned, we are autonomous, but we are still waiting until we have a trained man to assume the pastorship of the church. And as well, the missionary anticipates finishing up some construction before we get to that point. But the day will come where we will be autonomous and we'll all know it at that point in time. So I have never allowed the church to look into the future feeling that I'm always going to be there. Uh, and when we started these extension ministries, like the literacy center, like the sports center, uh, even the medical work, uh, I never held a position in any of those things, refused to do so. Uh, we moved our people into those positions of leadership. And so to get to what I think you're looking for here, Josh, you know, if I'm pastoring in the States, as an American pastoring in the States, I'm going to be a lot more direct in my approach because I'm going to view myself as the pastor and I am leading this work. And so I will be inclined to say, folks, this is the need. This is what I think we can do to meet that need. Let's get together and let's go out and, and do this. And I'm going to view myself kind of in the forefront there, leading the charge, as it were. And I think that's normal. And I think to a large degree, that's how many of our independent Baptist churches work. But mm. I began to realize fairly early on here, in the culture, in the mentality, uh, you know, there are so many respect issues. And 
you know, let's take the literacy center, for example, if we open up that literacy center and, and I appoint myself as the director and I'm going to be the director of that center. And so, yes, we have other teachers and we have other people that are working in that center, but I'm the one directing it. In, in the minds of our Ivorian people, it is exceedingly difficult for any of them to ever take my place as the director. Hmm, right, that's, just, right. that's just, it's going to be tough. And if I'm not there as the director, say I'm home on furlough, then the thing is just really not going to work well at all. Right. So when we opened that literacy center, they wanted me to be the director. I told them I will not be the director. I will not hold any position in this literacy center. And we, we filled out the teachers and we determined who the director and the assistant director were. And we set all that up and we launched it. Now, the fact of the matter is I can walk into that literacy center at any time. And if I see a problem or I see something that I think needs to be changed, I can talk to our director and it will get changed. But the reality is that literacy center runs itself. And even when I'm here in the country, it's pretty rare that I'm actually up there at the literacy center, unless I've been invited to come and take my turn in, in, in the preaching circuit. So uh, that ministry runs itself. The basketball center runs itself. I do not have a title. I don't hold any specific position in that. The only position, the only title, and, and I even, I modify this as I speak to the people, but the only thing that you can really say that I am is at this point in time, I am functioning as the pastor of the church. I'm not, I don't hold any other title. I don't perform any other responsibility on any official level. All that is for the people to do for the church to do. And in that way, nobody is ever taking my place because the Ivorians have held those positions from the beginning. Right. And the real key was just knowing when somebody was ready to do that. And yes, there were times I asked people to do things and yes, I realized <laughs> I should not have done that, but I mean, that's just part of the process and we move things around as we needed to do that. But, um, I, I can go home on furlough and everything continues here perfectly well. Uh, it's just that I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not preaching. So our men take their turn in the preaching and our men take their turn in leading the church services. But, um, you know, I, I, I have viewed my role as a missionary, not as being out front directing, but as being a catalyst. What can I do and say to provoke the people to what has to be done so that from the very beginning, they're the ones that are doing it? And that seems to have yielded more success than the direct approach, let's say. Well, that's exactly the answer. You answered what I was trying to articulate, and it is something that's difficult to articulate, I think, um, for a lot of missionaries, that weird reality of you're leading a ministry, um, but at the same time, your your hands are in everything in that direct approach, like you said, and it's it sometimes is hard to articulate that role of how it works. I like what uh, Malik Job, our the lead pastor of our church here, what his brother said, he held a seminar on um, soul winning and door-to-door uh, -door soul winning and evangelization one uh, last year. And one of the things he said was, we're grateful for the missionaries in the past who have come and the missionaries who are here now. Um, but he said, it's time for us, the, we the Senegalese to step up and to begin doing the ministry and taking the lead. And this statement he made, he said, 
we need to let the missionaries lead from the shadows while we take the front. And I think that was a good way of articulating it, that, you know, it's, it's a role where we do the same thing. We start a ministry, but I'm sitting in the background, uh, especially kids ministries. I'm not involved directly because there's laws here where, you know, a foreigner can't be involved directly with uh, teaching children and things like that. But um, I'll sit back in the shadows and sit back as things are going, kind of overseeing it. And so sometimes that's hard to articulate. I know one pastor I talked with uh, before I came back, I was explaining our vision. I told him that uh, we just uh, confirmed a lead pastor. The church voted and accepted Malik as our lead pastor. Um, and he said, well, what does that make you like the assistant pastor? Is it going to kind of be easier now for you? And I, I just got to laugh because I thought, it, actually, I'm going to have probably double the work now because of where we're, uh, what we're looking at doing with expanding, which leads me into this uh, kind of closing up here, which is as your ministry grew and you began to uh, bring in more leadership and the church got more involved and you're overseeing uh, these different outreaches. Um, you decided, when did you kind of decide you would take the approach of making your church kind of a central hub of bringing guys in, training them, and then sending them out? When did that become a decision that you would follow that pattern? And then kind of maybe start us from have you started churches out of your church and what's the process look like from vision to training a guy and then the process of actually getting that started? What's that look like? Um, you know, the, the area of pastoral training, I think, uh, has, has been one of our biggest challenges out here in Ivory coast, uh, very early on in the life of BIMI missionaries here, we had a Bible Institute and unfortunately, there was a specific dilemma that developed and that institute was not able to continue beyond the early 90s. And after that point, throughout the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, there was kind of a decentralized approach to pastoral training where each missionary is just kind of training his own guys, which, you know, certainly is an option, but it, it began to become apparent to me, I mean, here you got one missionary that's beating himself up to teach four classes to his pastoral candidates. And there's another missionary over here beating himself up to, to teach four classes to his pastoral candidates. Why don't they just put them all together and they each teach right. two? I mean, right. you know, right. and a multiplicity of professors is, is a good thing anyway, at least in my opinion, it is. So, um, it, it was challenging. Uh, and when we were in Anyama, we opened an institute. But um, once I left Anyama and we started approaching the time where that other missionary was going to be leaving, you know, that that institute closed. And so, you know, I felt burdened about that. And so in 2003, we had another autonomous church that wanted to open a Bible institute. And I agreed to work with them for five years to do that, but there were challenges in that. And after that five years, we were no longer doing that. And the effects of this were becoming apparent within the country because we just simply were not getting men trained the way that we needed to. And I began to evaluate this like around 2006, 2007, and felt very convicted about it, very burdened about it, 
Uh, and so I began to determine what is it going to take to have a central Bible Institute again that will meet the necessary needs in order for our candidates to be able to come and get this training. And I knew we were going to have to have dormitories. Uh, I knew that we were going to have to have computer access for them and libraries and what have you. And so we started putting the plan in place to have the building that was going to be necessary to bring these things together that were going to be necessary. And it, it took about eight years to get to where I thought we were ready, but we started in December of 2016 with our first class and began to go from there. And as all this is evolving, again, I'm starting to see more the role that the Lord had in mind for the Bangerville Church in the midst of all that. Now, we were starting other churches in the meantime. I mean, you know, I came with that typical, <laughs> and I'm not critical, but just sort of that typical thing. I got to start this church and I got to have it done in five years. I mean, I got to, <laughs> I got to have a guy train and I got to have him taking it over. And, you know, you can, you can push that all you want to, but if the Lord hadn't given you the elements yet, it's not going to happen. And if you make it happen, then it's going to be a disaster. So you, you have to go with what the Lord's given you. And, uh, you know, I can just remember thinking, uh, man, I'm really failing here. I, for one reason or another, I can't get this spiritual church where it needs to be. And then in 2008, when the Benjamin Church was eight years old, we just went to preach a funeral up north in a village where the father of one of our Benjamin Church members had passed away. And before that was over, we have 60 converts. The chief has given us a piece of land and is begging us to open a church there. <laughs> and the man whose father passed wow. away, that member of our church, had already had three years of Bible Institute. He was 10 years older than I was, a, a mature guy, ready to go. He stepped right into that, and boom, there's a church. It's like the, <laughs> it's like the Lord said, Bob, it's not up to you. It's up to me. If I want to open a church, I'll open one, and you'll be nothing more than a spectator of that. And the Lord did it again in, in uh, 2015. Uh, the Bangeville Church was able to open up a, a second church, uh, after the Zonaplay Church out in the city of Mont, and okay. that as well is doing very well. And so the Bangerville Church itself has started two new churches. Uh, they have an active missions program. They're supporting eight different missionaries on a monthly basis. They're also involved in a program to get monies together for specific missionary projects like buying church property or, or building church buildings. And so uh, we've been able to incorporate all that into the life of the church We've been able to start two new churches specifically through our church. Um, but all of that has come together to put the Bangerville Church in a very good position to be a model now for those men that we're training in the Institute. Very good. Well, that's exciting to see how that's developing and um, kind of coming toward the end of the interview here. I want people to be able to connect with your ministry who haven't, who don't know about your ministry yet. So as we come to the end, I'll have you leave some of that information, but I just want to close with probably just two things I wanted to finish up with. The first is, especially for missionaries coming to Africa, one of the things that 
has had a great negative impact on the advance of the gospel is the charismatic movement. Um, I saw that visibly when I was in that short visit I made to Cote d'Ivoire, just seeing even some of the churches and their impact. It's beginning to make inroads here in Senegal little by little. Usually from what I've observed is that the charismatic movement waits until the Baptists go to the hard place and get a good, you know, gets a work started. Then they come in and follow up and bring all their nonsense in. And so can you talk a little bit about some of what you've observed of the negative impact of the charismatic movement in Africa in general, Cote d'Ivoire maybe specifically. And then the reason I'm bringing it up is what can a missionary do and even the national pastor do to try to combat that negative influence within his community and in his own church. We deal with it even in our church with people being influenced by guys online and different things like that. Well, um, boy, it's a great question. You know, when, when I was starting the church in Bangerville, as I mentioned, we started it in our home. The city hall asked me to go around all my neighbors and make sure that this would not create a problem for them. And I understood that because you have so many Pentecostal and charismatic churches in this country and pardon the expression, they just absolutely go hog wild. They'll hook up these huge sound systems. They'll go all night long, literally all night long to six o'clock in the morning. They'll absolutely drive people crazy. And so when, when you start saying, I want to start a church in the house, you can recognize that might get you a whole lot of opposition very, very quickly. And so I went around all my neighbors to explain that I wanted to open this church, but our church will have no sound system. Um, you know, there's just not going to be anything about it that's going to be a problem for you. And we're certainly not going to do any all night services. Um, but as I was talking to one of my neighbors, I explained that to him. Now, this is a very well-educated man. He has a PhD in education from the University of Laval in Quebec. Uh, he's worked for the Ministry of Education for a number of years. You know, he was about uh, 50 years old at this point in time, still in his career. And uh, I talked to him, told him what we wanted to do. And he said, well, it sounds, if your church is the way that you're describing it, I don't think I'll have any problem with it. I said, okay, that's great. And, and I went from there to ask him about his religious background. He said he'd been Catholic. His family was Catholic when he, when he was first born. Uh, but that he hadn't been in the Catholic Church since the day he got married. He felt like Catholic Church was empty, nothing to it. I said, well, have you ever visited any other church? And he said, yeah, he had a colleague that went to the Foursquare Gospel Church, and he visited there a couple times. And I laughed. I said, wow, I mean, you've hit the two extremes. You've got the dead, uh, you know, Catholic mass on this end, and, uh, you know, Foursquare Gospel, in the charismatic spectrum, that's about as extreme as you get. I said, what'd you think of that? Now, this was his answer. This is a man who has not accepted Christ, okay. an educated man. And he said to me, to me, the charismatic movement is nothing more than West African animism using Christian terms. Mm, right. Now, that, that is, um, you know, on the spiritual plane, that's a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it took me a long time to, to digest that and to, to, to really understand what he was trying to say. But the fact of the matter is a practicing animist who for one reason or another may feel like he no longer wants to practice animism is going to feel remarkably comfortable in the charismatic church. 
and is going to feel very much like he's been doing the right things. He just has not been doing them for the right person. I see. Yeah. And, and this is devastating. This is yeah. devastating. So, uh, you know, as we start our church, we are huge on declaring with our people that we do nothing that is not substantiated and commanded in the scriptures. So everything that we're doing as a church, we're constantly going back and saying, why are we doing this? Okay, this is why we're doing this. And we open up the scriptures and we show from the scriptures why we are doing it. Why are we not doing this? We are not doing this. We open up the scriptures, we take them. These are the reasons from the scriptures why we are not doing this. Um, you know, the charismatic movement, of course, the guys that are leaders in the charismatic movement, yes, they write books because frankly, charismatic leaders are about nothing more than earning money. And if right. you don't agree with that, I'm sorry, go to second Timothy or second Peter two, go to second Timothy chapter four, because that's precisely what Peter and Paul are saying. These guys are in it for the money. They don't live the life. They don't maintain the, any conviction in their own life. They are simply carrying out a, a type of religious whatever in order to have money and, and to have power. And so that's very much the case here in the Ivory Coast. So we hit very hard on the authority of the scriptures. We hit very hard on false doctrine and false teachers. And to bring this to a conclusion, to give an example of where this can get so destructive, uh, Every charismatic church here on the Ivory Coast, I feel pretty comfortable saying every, I'd be shocked, quite frankly, if there was a charismatic church that did not practice this. They like to practice what they refer to as deliverance. And of course, right. from the scriptures, we think deliverance is a great word. We were delivered from the bondage of sin at the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as our savior. But the deliverance ministry with the ministries, with the churches, the charismatic churches here in the Ivory Coast says that a specific sin can be imposed upon a Christian. And that he will continue in that sin regardless of his will because a demon or whatever is imposing that sin upon him. Ergo, he is in need of a quote-unquote deliverance, which means the leader, the pastor, or whoever that church is going to have to do some whacked out spectacular thing right. that delivers that individual from that particular sin. And now all of a sudden he doesn't feel like he has to do it anymore and, and he can go on with life without doing that sin. And this is practiced so widely that I get asked this all the time. You guys have deliverance ministry or when do you have your deliverance service or how do y'all handle deliverance, you know? And my answer yeah. to that is Jesus Christ's death and his shed blood on the cross was sufficient to liberate anyone who comes to him in faith from the bondage of sin. If indeed a person is genuinely born again, and he finds himself in a habit of sin, it is because, as James says, he has given himself over to his own lust. He has fed his sinful nature, and that is why he now feels powerless to get out of it. The answer is not some whacked-out deliverance service. It is simply recognizing that sin, confessing it, and now feeding the spirit, feeding the divine nature, as Peter refers to it, and allowing that to grow, and if necessary, get some brothers and sisters in Christ to hold me accountable so that I can get out of this. But I'm telling you, um, 
that deliverance is so destructive to good mm -hmm. theology concerning Christ, good theology concerning salvation, good understanding as to how the Christian life is to be conducted. And um, it's brutal. It's terrible. And yeah. uh, the charismatic movement um, is, is responsible. I'm telling you, it, it, by the time everything is said and done, it will have been responsible for sending more people to hell than, than maybe any other. I don't know. Uh, perhaps hmm. only the, the Roman Catholic Church excluded. Yeah. And I th you brought up a point about the the way that animism plays a role in the charismatic movement. I know you mentioned you're working on, uh, you told me earlier, you're working on a dissertation on animism, West Africa. I want to have you on on another podcast and just discuss that topic. I think it would be a big help specifically to missionaries in Africa. And so we'll dig deeper into that maybe in a future podcast, uh, have you on to discuss that again. But we we had the same, same issue dealing with a lady in our church here. She had a cataract. It was that simple. But she came from a charismatic background and uh, Pastor Malik and I sat her down. We said, look, there's money was just sent by somebody randomly, specifically for her as a gift. Somebody who had been on a mission trip here wanted to send her money. So we said, look, there's money here. Somebody just sent it. That's God telling you that you just need to get this surgery. She kept telling us, no, I, you know, God's going to heal me. He's going to heal me. And I believe God, I believe God heals, but we, it took us about a month to convince her that this is simply a, and we took her to James and I said, look, anytime healing is done in the new Testament church. Okay. There's no more healers out there. And we hit on those same things all the time to false teachers. And the fact that nobody has the gift of healing nowadays and things like that. Healing is done within the context of the church. You call the elders of the church and they pray over you. And I told her, one of the reasons why that James instructs that is because the pastors can try to discern if there's sin in your life that maybe is, you know, rooting in this and you need to confess sin because you're already, yes, like you said, you're delivered in Jesus and uh, you don't need some wacky type of, you know, show to put on. She finally was convinced that, yes, this is simply a, a minor surgery. She was going to get it. But then she called her former pastor in the Capitol, who's charismatic. She came to church the next Sunday and uh, she said, I believe that God has already healed me. I talked to my former pastor and she's not a member of our church, by the way, because of she just hasn't she just attends regularly, but hasn't fully come to embrace, right. you know, our, our doctrine and everything. But she she loves the Bible's being taught at our church. So that's what draws her. But she said, uh, I talked to my former pastor and he told me, I just have to believe that I'm already healed. And as soon as she said that, I saw Pastor Molly just put his head down. He's like, oh man, these people, you know, it's, you're not already healed. The, I see the cataract in your eye. Let's, let's get this done. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. So it is detrimental. So I want to, I want to have, maybe we'll discuss that on our podcast. Well, as we close out here, I really appreciate your time and uh, you taking the time we would you just kind of address what are some things as you see a younger generation coming to the mission field and from the many years you've you've been on the mission field let's start with firstly what are some things you've observed in missionaries maybe an attitude an approach that was flawed that what missionaries got wrong maybe about their approach their family life that you know a lot of missionaries leave the field and maybe it was just one little thing they could have tweaked 
uh, in an approach that they just didn't change. What's maybe some things you've observed in missionaries that, that they got wrong, that they should have changed, or even in your own life, things that you changed maybe that you learned. And then for a young guy coming in, a young family, a husband and wife, um, what are some things that they maybe they should have in mind, you know, given that idea of sometimes we have a Western mentality of doing things. What's the quickest way to kind of learn to adapt to the culture and accept things? And we'll just kind of close out with that. Well, Josh, since 1994, there have been 30 independent Baptist missionaries that have left the Ivory Coast. So uh, we wow. have observed this and, and watched it happen. And there are, in fact, many reasons, many different reasons that can provoke that. But uh, the one that seems uh, the most important to me is this. You know, for many years, we kind of got in a pattern in the States to where, you know, an individual feels the Lord calling him to mission. So we shoot them off to Bible college and there's not much contact with them while they're there. And finally they graduate in May and they get married that summer and they start deputation that fall because, you know, bless God, they, they just absolutely have to get to the mission field as fast as they possibly can. Um, and the fact of the matter is number one, they never did do the ministry really in any real context over, for any real period of time. So they did the academics and they went to the right. classes, but there was never a time where somebody said, you know, you are in charge of this ministry for the next six months or for the next year. Uh, there was never a time where they were in the same place with the intent of working full-time in the ministry to see how effectively they did win people to Christ. You know, there was never a time where you could check out how is he right. as an elder? How is he as a pastor or a shepherd? How is he as a bishop? Is he able to do these things? The fact of the matter is churches are ordaining these guys and authorizing them and sending them out without any real idea whatsoever as to whether or not they can actually do the job. And for me, that's very problematic. Hmm. I think that a local church needs hmm. to recognize its responsibility when it puts a man into the mission, into, into the ministry, excuse me, when it puts a man into the ministries. And as such, you know, we read in the scriptures that if God is calling a man into the ministry, then God will give to that man what he needs in order to successfully accomplish the ministry. So mm -hmm. the simple fact that a young man stands up and says, God's called me to be a missionary does not mystically make it so. I really think at that point in time, it is for his local church now to engage with them and say, okay, you feel the Lord calling you into missions. Let's work on that. And as he goes off to Bible college, I mean, we're actually paying attention to his grades. We may even have a conversation with a professor or two to find out where he is strong, where he is weak, as he is considering life mates, who's going to be his wife, his local pastors, local church is helping him in that decision because it recognizes its responsibility to confirm that, yes, God has, in fact, called this young man into the ministry. Once he has received his degree, we're going to bring him back. We're going to set him up full time in the church. We're going to have him work on staff as best as we can. And we're even going to tell the church. So and so is here now. They're doing an internship. He feels the Lord is directing him to the ministry. It's our responsibility to confirm that that is indeed the case. And so we're going to watch him as he does this. 
you see, in this way, the missionary really begins to understand that he does have a sending agency. He does have a place where he's anchored. He does have a place from which he is thrust out into his missions career. And I, I think oftentimes that's what really makes the difference. I know that oftentimes with missions, we're very much afraid of the missionary candidate doing an internship in a stateside church. And we have fear of that because Number one, we don't want them to get detoured. We're afraid if they start that internship, then they'll just stay on that pastoral staff forever and they'll never go to the field. Or, 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 or number two, we'll say working in a stateside church is nothing like working on a church on the mission field. Therefore, it's a complete waste of time. But in my opinion, both of those are completely forgetting the fact that if this local church is going to ordain them and authorize them to go, they ought to absolutely know something about him and whether or not he nice. does in fact have the abilities and the capabilities necessary to get this job done. Uh, I'm not going to go into any detail, but of the 30 that came out here to the Ivory Coast, there's a significant number of them that could not serve on most of the pastoral staffs in the churches in the United States of America. And if they couldn't serve mm -hmm. there, why are we sending them here? The idea of the mission field is not a place to send your rejects. I'm sorry, but ministering in a new language and in a new culture is infinitely more challenging than ministering in one's own language and in one's own culture. And so yeah. when it comes to missions, let's have our candidates prove themselves ministerially to their local churches so that when they send them out, they're doing so intelligently knowing that God has in fact given to this person what they're going to need to accomplish the ministry. And just to end with this, Josh, one of the benefits of that is it will render that candidate a little bit more mature and having a little bit of maturity before you come to the mission field is not a bad idea. Well, I couldn't agree more. I really appreciate your insight. And that's so important. Uh, that preparation time. I try to tell young guys to develop a sense of urgency, but that at the same time, your willingness is not the same as readiness. Doesn't mean you're ready. Okay. So you can be willing to go, but it, you're not prepared. That's in fact, we were getting ready to launch out. And, um, one of the pastors on the board, when we were being approved with BIM, I leaned over to my pastor who was on the board and said, Josh seems kind of young. Does he have any practical experience? You know, it's so, uh, so I get that. I mean, there's another mission agency that's here in this, um, in our city. There's only one other mission agency and they actually, it's a pretty grueling process. They're not independent Baptists. Um, but it's a grueling process. And what I've noticed is on average, their missionaries who actually make it to the field are already in their thirties and have a couple kids and have had to serve at least five years on a staff in the States. And so, um, I love that as independent Baptists, we do have a little more freedom to follow what God is calling us to do and not as much bureaucratic red tape to get through in what we feel Agreed. God is leading with what God is leading us. But at the same time, I've, I've observed, and I know you just mentioned it, um, if somebody's not prepared and then you get to the field and there's lack of accountability, it's, it can just turn into a disaster. So yeah, I hope pastors and young men, if you're 
called the missions. Take to heart what uh, Brother Mac just said and uh, make sure you've got the proper training that you got the heart of your pastor. Uh, because we say churches plant churches, right? And it's not just a cliche. You're sending a young man, a young family to start a church. The missionary is not the church planner. The church is cultivating this, this family to go and reproduce what you are. So you're, as a church, this family starting a church abroad, they're representative of you. And I, I think the sending agency gives just as much accountability possibly as the missionary in his work, as much as though, you know, as the apostle Paul said, it's fruit to your account at the same time for the blessings. Um, definitely. Yeah. Lots of preparation. So I appreciate your insight. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I want to schedule another one in the future. There's so much more we could talk about. We didn't even get to the, um, the coup that you guys went through and, and how does a missionary stay on the field after suffering, you know, tragedy and, and difficulty and things like that. So there's, um, there's a lot we could get to. So let's plan another time. But why don't you go ahead and just let us know how can uh, somebody who doesn't know about your ministry, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, well, I'm on my church website, uh, clevelandbaptist.org. And obviously, uh, my mission board's website, bimi.org. Um, and as well, we're developing a website right now, ivorycoastministries.com. Um, so uh, somebody could go to any of those websites and, and get all the information that they would need on our families. Uh, uh, my email is rcmac, M-A-C-H-R-C-I at gmail.com. Again, that's r-c-m-a-c-h-r-c-i at gmail. Uh, they can reach me that way. Um, Stateside, we have a Vonage number 216-544-0290, and uh, we pick up out here on the Ivory Coast. It goes to the internet. So those are ways that people can contact us or they can check out uh, what's happening ministerial with us. Excellent. Well, listener, I hope you'll get in touch. Pray for the Max Ministry and uh, look them up, uh, get in contact with them. Let them know uh, how his interview today has been an encouragement to you. And uh, we appreciate, Brother Max, so much your time. And uh, say hi to your family for us. And we'll continue praying as God continues to expand the great work that you guys are doing there in the Ivory Coast. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you.